Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The David McWilliams Podcast Course. Macroeconomics in a globalized world. Introduction. Welcome to this economics course, which I hope you're going to enjoy. Uh, sometimes economics is regarded as technical and difficult and dull, but we're going to try and make it a wee bit more interesting, more applicable. And the whole point of doing economics is not necessarily to replicate what is done in undergraduate. And in fact, one of the problems with economics is that the world is full of economists and very few of them can forecast anything. You might have noticed. This country is exactly the same. It's full of highbrow economists. And yet we had the biggest financial crash any country's any experienced. And the vast majority of them didn't see anything wrong. So the question is then, why is that? So if it's not based in practicalities, if it's not based in evidential human behavior, why do we genuflect so much to the undergraduate stuff? But what I would like at the end of all this, because economics is really great crack. I've had a total laugh over nearly 30 years of doing economics. I started in the central bank doing sums and equations and all that malarkey, which we thought was important then. And then we realized it wasn't important at all. And then I went and I worked in an investment bank for five years. Swiss bank, then I worked in a French bank, then I worked for a small hedge fund, then I came back to Ireland and started writing books and doing TV shows and writing newspaper articles and getting involved in public debate. You can do really anything with economics as long as you don't get too het up about the absolute nature and veracity of what you're talking about. As long as you're full of self-doubt, you can be fine. So if anybody wants a career switch and wants to like shimmy into economics, don't be afraid of it. You don't necessarily, in fact, I believe that economics should only be taught to people who have had at least two or three real jobs. One of the problems with, the, with this business is you get clever kids come into college, do the leave insert, clever, 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 do very well, do the economics, et cetera, et cetera. And they end up in very posi positions of huge economic power without really being able to tie their own shoelaces. And then something like the human being comes into the equation and everything goes pear-shaped. And the reason I say that is that economics is only about us human beings. When you look at the economy, what you see is only the aggregation of millions of little decisions taken in every single kitchen, in every workplace. All these decisions, you reckon, should, should we buy this? Should we not buy this? Should I go for that job? Should I invest? Should I save? Should I spend? When you aggregate all those little decisions up, that's the economy. 
That's the macroeconomy. So in order to understand the macroeconomy properly, you have to understand us, this bizarre and beautiful creature called a human being. So there will be a module on behavioral economics, which is the psychology of economics, which is increasingly very, very important because if you don't understand us, you don't understand what's going on. And you've got to understand old shit, like the greed and lust and all that good stuff that drives people to do mental things in economic booms and busts, which drives us over the cliff. Question for ourselves maybe now is, is the Dublin property market displaying the same characteristics as it did in the past, particularly the commercial stuff around here, the ludicrous prices. A lot of that doesn't come down to maths or equations or valuations, it comes down to human nature and madness. The other thing I want you to appreciate is that economics is history. If you look back at our history as an animal on this planet, you find that about 20,000 years ago, which is a long time ago, you find the first direct evidence of basic accountancy. So in Africa, carbon-dated fossils and archaeology has shown us that the first basic accounting was unveiled by the thigh bone of a baboon, which is unusual, and little notches taken out of it. And each knot corresponded to, I owe you this, you owe me that, I owe you this. So our tribal ancestors, and this is what economics is about history, began the basic idea of trading with each other a long, long time ago. In fact, you could go so far as to say, without economics and money, the discovery of economics and money, you don't really get any civilization. 5,000 years ago, you get the first introduction of coins and money, our friends in Mesopotamia. The history of humanity is the history of economics. And we're going to talk a wee bit about history. We're talking a wee bit about philosophy, because the history of philosophy is the history of economics. When you think basic philosophy, religion, Jesus saying to the fella, it's much harder for a, fa for a rich man to get through the eye of the needle. Remember all that stuff? This was all about value judgments about economics. So all great religions are the counterbalance to the lure and madness of money and its handmaiden economics. So I want you to see it in the huge context that economics is part of what we are and we can't get rid of it. So for example, you go back to Aristotle. The first thing he says, his philosophy, one of the first things, all property should be private. So what you see is the Greeks, even back then, are trying to figure out where this economic power, potency, lies within the great constellation of philosophy. And we're going to touch on those sort of issues as well. We talk about Karl Marx, who was a good lad, in the sense that you should always start your analysis with Marx, but never end there, just as a general rule. But you start there, you can understand that basically most economics is a fight between capital and the return to capital being profit and labor, the return to labor, which is wages. Most of the great battles we have in society are sourced in this conflict. We get the rather extreme version, which is communism, which says that capital should get nothing and labor should get everything. And then we get the rather silly version called shareholder value, which is that capital should get everything and labor should get nothing. Somewhere in the middle, I think, is the right neck of the woods. And Many years ago, I worked for Jack Welch. It was a very crazy, crazy, crazy gig. Uh, Jack Welch was um, launching his book in 2001. It was impeccable timing, actually. He launched his book on the 12th of September, as in the day after the Twin Towers. But I wor worked for him. I was, meant to his, I was his MC for a long time during his gigs. Even then, Jack Welch, the head of GE, the champion of shareholder value, even then he kind of realized 
I was only really messing. It wasn't really that important. So again, it's the middle ground we've got to find, somewhere between communism and somewhere between shareholder value. We're going to talk about some major economists. There's a book here called The Great Economists by a woman called Lindy Yo, and it deals with 12 brilliant economists. We're going to deal with four of them. Adam Smith, John Maynard Keynes, Joseph Schumpeter, who was less well-known than the others, but actually, I suspect, more relevant. And finally, Milton Friedman, the head of monetarism. Anything you pick up by Paul Krugman, read if you can. These are two beautiful little books. One is called The Return of Depression Economics, which was written post-crisis, 2008. This one is called The Accidental Theorist. Krugman, who you might know, uh, is a Nobel Prize winner for economics. He's also a New York Times columnist. He's probably the finest writer in economics. He's very, very good. This book is a beauty. I've just actually put it down. I read it again. I've just put it down. I just thought, Jesus, we're going to have to discuss this. It's for anybody who's interested in financial markets. It's a beautiful book called The Most Important Thing by a guy called Howard Marks, Uncommon Sense for the Thoughtful Investor. It's a thing of beauty. The reason he called it the most important thing is that after he's, he was, he's been running a hedge fund for years, he was basically saying that all the time, he keeps saying to himself, and, and the most important thing in investing and the most important thing, and here he's got a whole book of most important things. It's, this is a little thing of beauty. It's, it's called The Economics Book, and it's really great. And I found it only a couple of years ago, and I thought this is much more interesting than almost any economic textbook I've ever, ever read. It's a beauty. Funny, witty, erudite, wise, and full of really good ideas. And so there you go. But in my latest tome, which we're going to take a good few from, bits and pieces from, there's a lot of Schumpeterian economics, the economics of Joseph Schumpeter, which explains why this, amongst other things, this country of ours grew in the last 30 years. Which, by the way, for, for, for non-Irish people, still remains a kind of joke for us, that we were born in the poorest country in Western Europe, and quite quickly, we became one of the richest. Why did that happen? And that is the major question in economics. Why do some countries remain poor and other countries get rich? Once you can answer that, you answer everything. And it's not that easy to get a handle on. Why do some countries that started rich become poor? When I mean, you take a country like Argentina, how did it get so poor? It's now the 77th richest country in the world. If you go to Argentina, you arrive in Argentina, you have these extraordinary buildings, extraordinary monuments to a country. Uruguay, for example, beside it, was known as the Switzerland of Europe, or of Latin America. It had a better welfare state than any European country in the 1920s. Now Uruguay is a poor country. Why does that happen? Ireland, when I was born here, this was a really poor country. It really was properly poor, right? And now, even taking into account some of the jiggery-pokery and the GDP statistics, it's a really wealthy place, you know? How does that happen? But also, why does it happen when it does? So why was the first country to become rich Holland? What was going on? Think about Holland, right? Even the Romans, if you look, when Caesar went north of France, he described a tribe who lived in marshes. They were called the Dutch, okay? And he couldn't understand how this tribe had decided to settle up where they were. Think about Holland has got no resources at all. Nothing. In fact, there's a great expression for Dutch people, if they're here, that there's a great expression about Irish and Dutch people, that if the Dutch lived in Ireland, they'd feed the world. 
And if the Irish, Irish lived in Holland, we'd drown. So think about what's going on in the Dutch mind. How come Holland becomes the richest country in the world? Out of nothing. They had a very, very adventurous way of looking at the world. Tulips made them poor and rich because they kind of spend all their money in the tulips. But again, you only do that mad shit if you're rich. They're very innovative. They traded, incredibly creative. All these things, they sound really obvious, but when they come together at once, they're extraordinarily potent. The Dutch, they also, and it's an unusual thing to say, separated church and state very early. They respected the individual very early. They said that the Dutch Reformed Church is not necessarily part of the government. This was unusual to do. So very, very quickly, they began to embrace the notion of a separation of powers. They also began to embrace the notion of the merchant as a key figure in the game. Most countries at, this, at that stage didn't understand what a merchant was, they were feudal. So if you had lots of land, which you got by kicking lumps out of people a couple hundred years ago, you became rich. The Dutch dispensed with that. And they said, you get rich, not through land, through trade. And they did this very effectively. They also had the most evolved financial markets in the world around the year 1660. They began to deploy their banking system in an incredibly inventive way. And when you deploy your banking system, not in the way we deployed it, which was kind of in the, uh, the cowboy approach that I'll buy that for me for a fiver and then I'll borrow from Mick uh, 15 quid and I'll sell that to you for 20 quid and you can sell it to Tommy for 100 quid. All that. Not that. The Dutch figured out how to play the risk game. They figured out how to value time and risk incredibly because that's what you need to do. If you're sending ships to Indonesia and the Dutch won't say, but there's that little small bit of kicking the shit out of the locals in Indonesia, which always helps because economic history is the history of colonialism as well. Okay? At its root is this fight for the resources. And usually you can only get, people usually don't give the resources willingly. You might have noticed that. It's a strange thing in humanity. You like to keep the stuff you own. So the way you tend to get it is you bully the people who own it, cajole them, lie to them, do all that good stuff, and then sell it on to somebody else for an inflated price. So what we're going to do is we're going to go around the houses, being able to connect the dots in economics is profoundly important for any senior position, even for social ammunition, okay? Even to be able to contribute socially to the discussion. So when people discuss Brexit, or why has every, almost every mainstream economist in the United States, when Donald Trump got elected, said, well, there's going to be clearly a recession, and the stock market's going to fall, and, you know, because this guy's a lunatic, and the United States is now in the ninth or tenth year of a rather robust upswing without any genuflection to the president in any real case, except for the fact that he's borrowing lots of money. But that's what Republicans do in America. You know, Republicans in America pretend they're pious when they're in opposition. Have you noticed that? So when the Republicans are in opposition in America, they talk about the budget deficit as if it is the great Satan. And then when they get into power, they spend like drunken sailors, right? That's what they do. It's a bit like the conservatives in England, or well, they're an extreme version of that. Right? I also want to, you to be able to discuss the European Union, what's going on. We want to discuss that and how that all feeds in. Or like, is there going to be a monumental crash in China? China is now incurring more debt per head than any other country has done almost ever. And yet people are blasé about it. Or a country like Australia. How does a country like Australia have 23 years of economic growth? So all these things I want to infuse you with the tools to discuss.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.